Your word, O God, is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. This great gift by which we learn from the ancients and their relationship with you, the recordings of their meditations upon your love and the way in which you have sought them and us to be those who will be found to follow you. May that word open our eyes that we might see and stop our ears that we might hear. Cast wide the portals of our being that we might apprehend your word for us. Find strength and encouragement for the living of these days. In Christ we pray. Amen. Two passages from Scripture this morning. First, from the book of Genesis, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 4, and then from the Gospel of John, in the third chapter, verses 16 and 17. Now, you'll recognize perhaps uh, each of these uh, passages. Uh, they figure prominently in the history of uh, the revelation of God's care and love for the world. The first story concerns Avram, and by extension, his wife Sarai. These were the names by which they were first known, Avram and Sarai. Abraham and Sarah come later as part of the uh, promise of conception uh, for a son for them. But in this uh, story, Avram and his family, along with the extended clan, uh, are living in Haran, now, Haran uh, is in what you and I would call Lebanon. It's at the top of the Fertile Crescent. Fertile Crescent uh, runs from the Tigris-Euphrates Valley in the east and up and over, and then down the Jordan River Valley uh, to the Sinai. And this Fertile Crescent, of course, is the, uh, the place of the birthplace of civilization. Now, God had originally called Avram's father, Terah, to leave Ur, one of the ancient, most ancient cities in the world, and to leave there and go to a land that God would show them. And so Terah and his whole family, including Avram and all the rest, had left, and they traveled north and west, up across. Now, wait a minute. If, oh, okay, they went this way, because you're looking at the map from the back. Now you're looking at it from the front. They travel this way up, and they get to the top of the Fertile Crescent, and instead of going down to Canaan, to which they've been called, they stop in Haran, and there they live. But then God appears to Avram in Haran. You with me? Okay, good. Poof, I'm getting lost already. The sands of the desert. Okay. He calls Avram and says, come, and I'll show you where to go. Now, what's remarkable in this story is that God asked Avram to do two things. One, to leave his family, not his immediate family, but the large extended clan, all the descendants of, of Terah who had settled in Haran, to leave them behind and to go to a different place. And he doesn't tell them, doesn't tell Avram, the name of the place. He just says, come and I will show you. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the world shall be blessed. So pack up and follow me. Uh, where are we going? I'll show you. Are we there yet? Right? <laughs> and I will bless you. Five times there's this promise of blessing, but also I will curse those who curse you. Why? Because Avram is abandoning his family and thereby putting himself and his immediate family in grave danger. The security in the ancient world was derived from your extended clan, your identity, your, your, your physical well-being, your safety in the face of onslaught by enemies is all tied up in the clan. And now he's asking him to leave that and to go someplace. I'll show you. So when I was a little boy, the Ford Motor Company had an assembly plant in Somerville, Massachusetts, five miles from my home. My father, after the war, had gotten a job there, and he'd risen very well in the ranks, uh, plant management. And then the Ford Motor Company, in its wisdom, uh, designed and built the Edsel, <laughs> which was a complete disaster. And it had been designed and built in the Somerville assembly plant. And so the Ford Motor Company says, we got some bad juju going on in this place. So they said, we're going to abandon this plant and we're going to move to New Jersey, big new assembly plant. And so they offered my father a job to go to New Jersey from Boston. My parents thought this was like the funniest thing they'd ever heard. Move where? It's like when Jerry and I moved down here, people said, you're moving where? To Connecticut? So he, could, he didn't take the job, of course. Couldn't imagine leaving greater Boston. So he had to find a new job. So he's offered a job in Waltham, which is a little further to the west. It was like maybe 12 miles from our home. And I remember my parents discussing whether or not my father would take this job. A very good job. Actually, more money than Ford Motor Company was offering him. But it was so far to drive. 12 miles each way every day? Who wants to do that? So, you know, I, I understand, like, this request from God to Avram. It's a big deal. I mean, I wouldn't have done it myself. I'm just I'm sorry to say. But that's why God didn't ask me, right? He asked Avram. But these blessings, over and over again, you will be blessed. And not that people will be blessed, but they will bless themselves. It's a reflexive verb where they will bless themselves by calling on God to bless us as you have blessed our father Abraham and Sarah. And so it introduces us to the idea that our journey, our faith, is a journey. It's not a matter of being static, stuck in one place, never changing, always affirming and never diverting from the accepted truths, but always be willing to change and grow and 
make mistakes and learn from them and to sin and find forgiveness, you know, going on. The only thing in life that's constant is what? Change, right? Change. And so our life with God, we're also called to change, to be willing to pick up and to go. And I think it's in that spirit um, that we can understand perhaps more fully uh, an exchange between Nicodemus, who Vern just talked about, um, who came to Jesus under the cover of night. Now, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, very important person in the Jewish hierarchy, a person of great wealth, a learned scholar, perhaps a rabbi, uh, probably a Pharisee. Jesus was probably a Pharisee. He was a rabbi. And he began to think that there was something going on with Jesus that was really remarkable, and he wanted to investigate further, so he made an appointment with Jesus. You don't usually think of Jesus having a date book. <laughs> he made an appointment to come to him in the deep night, probably because he didn't want other people to know that he had gone to see Jesus, because he's already, already become a person around, this, around whom there's a great deal of division, diversity, and disagreement. And so he comes, and as Vern said, he's asking Jesus, how do you do all these things, right? And Jesus talks about being born again. And the word born again, and the verses that we're going to look at in just a minute, are perhaps some of the most divisive words in all of Scripture. It's remarkable. It's supposed to be an expression about God's unfolding love within our lives, but it's become a point of demarcation between certain kinds of Christians and other kinds of Christians. And certain kinds of Christians think, well, if you're not born again the way I'm born again, then you're not really a Christian. And if you're one of those other Christians, you look at the people who say they are born again, and you say, well, I'm not that kind of Christian. And there's all this sort of antipathy that crosses this divide. I remember um, when I was, uh, right after college, I was pretty seriously ill, and um, had gone to uh, be nursed back to health by my mother. And so I was uh, sitting on their front porch uh, late one summer afternoon, and I was sitting there, and my cousin Barbara happened to stop by. I didn't have a date book. Uh, she happened to stop by to pay me a visit. Now, Barbara is a born-again Christian by her own definition. And uh, she was holding my hand and uh, looking at me, she was worried that I was going to die. I was too, except I was so sick I was afraid I wouldn't die. <laughs> but I lived. So she looked at me in the eye and she said, David, she said, are you born again? I'm like, oy, oy, oy. <laughs> I'm already sick. I mean, why are you doing this to me? Leave me in my, let me, let me die. So I said, uh, yes, Barbara, I, I am born again. She said, Really? I said, yes. She was surprised, of course. And she said, tell me about it. No, I said, I can't. She said, oh, it's very personal. I said, well, actually, no, I can't tell you about it because I was three months old when I was baptized. And that's when I was born again. Look it up. You can see it in the Bible, okay? The point is, it seems to me, that we lose a deep and important idea in this passage about being born again. 
Now, Nicodemus takes it literally. He says, how can I be born again? Am I going to climb back in my mother's womb? And Jesus is like, ay, ay, ay. And we tend to do that as well. Being born again is not a been there, done that, once in a lifetime, never to be repeated kind of event. It's the kind of unfolding blessing of God as with Abraham, as Jesus and all the people he speaks to and, and reaches out to and loves. Whenever nobody else loves them, Jesus loves them. They're being born again by the infinite capacity, the unconditional love of God for the people who feel they cannot be loved, like us. But what we miss here is that this is about a wonderfully innovative way in our culture, innovative way of thinking about God as a woman who gives birth. Women give birth. And when he's talking about this, he's talking about God out of this feminine identity of conceiving and giving birth. And it really is a gift. None of us chooses to be born. Right? God, like a mother and someone else, decides to give us life and works, labors. Listen, this is real, physical work, right? Jesus is very earthy in his description of this. He talks about all kinds of bodily fluids. If you've been present at a birth, it's remarkable, but it's not sanitized. It is spiritual, it is emotional, it's intellectual, it's very physical. And Jesus uses it as a metaphor for how God labors for us. God labors for us. And God delivers us. Not because we're smart or wise or worthy, but God delivers us because God loves us. That's to be born again. And so we're born, and then we, what do we do right after we're born? We cry. Of course we cry. If you were there and then you come here, you'd cry again. I mean, I think about it, I'm like, hey, let me back in. This is ridiculous. I don't like this place at all. You think Abraham didn't know what he was getting into? The baby in the birth gale has no conception of what this life is like. Right? Except for one thing. This mother love that creates us, this mother love that sustains us, this mother love that takes the baby to her breast and again gives life, that's to be born again. To recognize that God lives and loves with us in that kind of mother love. Regardless of who we are and what we've become, this great abiding compassion, which leads us, and then when we fall behind, walks back and picks us up and carries us some more. In the great journey, which is our life, 
in which the only constant is change, except for the love of God. And so we are born again in multiple ways and different guises, often unawares of how God is loving and caring for us, giving birth to us yet again. Being born again is not a once been there, done that. I can use it as a cudgel to beat my cousin on the porch on East Foster Street in Melrose, Massachusetts. That's not being born again. That's just being mean. Being born again is to trust in God the way we do inherently when we are born and laying on our mother's breast that immediate, visceral, unbreakable bond with God. Amen.